The sermon text for today is found in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1530. Listen as I read God's word. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Here ends the reading. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see some of you, man. It's fun to uh, be back here at Elmwood and see familiar faces and some uh, unfamiliar faces as well. So this is uh, exciting for me. I'm glad to be here. Um, I'm excited to get into God's word. If I haven't met you, uh, as you heard, my name is Matt. And up until about uh, eight months or so ago, uh, I served as one of the pastors here. And uh, just this past November, my family and I stepped away 
uh, and uh, I now serve in a ministry called Chosen People Ministries, which is the uh, longest ongoing Jewish outreach ministry that's still in effect uh, in the entire country. And uh, yeah, it's been a wonderful privilege to serve as a missionary with them and kind of with an eye towards church planting. And so uh, our goal was to plant uh, a church, still is, to plant a church in the western suburbs uh, that is oriented towards reaching Jewish people, uh, but in a way that is uh, hospitable and uh, intelligible to those who are non-Jewish as well. And so uh, our church name is Grafted, and our mission is that we're trying to cultivate a family of Jews and Gentiles in Messiah Jesus. And so uh, this past January. Uh, We started out officially on that mission, and uh, we entered into a season uh, that I called relationship building. And so uh, as we did that, we were pretty much just trying to get to know people uh, at our other Sending Church Park Community Church in St. Louis Park and kind of just feel things out and see who was interested and really explain to people what our heart was to do. Because I know even when we shared here, like one of the questions was, okay, this is a cool idea, but what in the world does that look like, right? And so uh, very similar sentiments over there. And so I uh, started to process some of that uh, with them, and it's been really fun. We've gathered a team of about 20 people uh, at this point, and uh, our goal is to launch sometime here uh, in the early fall. And so we're doing that, and we've started training that team. We've been processing what it looks like to serve and to delegate responsibilities and to empower people uh, according to their gifting. Uh, and uh, we're also in the process, Holly and I, of fundraising, which is uh, incredibly fun. No, it's, it's actually okay. Um, But uh, definitely something uh, new for us being on missionary staff. And so uh, that's been going really well. And the Lord has been uh, abundantly faithful. So we're really grateful for all of that. But it is still a process. We're uh, kind of on a three-year campaign of of doing that. And so it's it's definitely one step at a time. But I just want to put it out there. If the Lord leads you and you guys want to partner with us financially and prayerfully, some of you already do. And we're really grateful for that. I would love to talk to you after the service uh, more about what all of that looks like. But uh, now, as we kind of enter into July and August, I have dubbed this crunch time for us. Um, And so we're really detailing a lot of stuff, asking questions like, where are we going to meet as a church? And that has been a huge conversation with our leadership team. And uh, what is it going to look like to actually gather and have liturgy uh, that, that is consistent with scripture, uh, but incorporates Jewish elements in a thoughtful way? Like that's a really challenging and uh, you'd be surprised, hot button thing to, to try and sort through all of that. And so we're, we're working hard at trying to make that happen well. But I have a couple just prayer requests for you that you can be praying for us with. Uh, number one, as I said, is our location to meet. Uh, as a church, we, we've had some uh, cool opportunities put in front of us, but we want to be where the Lord wants us. Uh, and so we're, we're praying through that. And so prayers for clarity and just discernment and continued open and closed doors would be great so that we can know if the Lord would speak to me audibly and say, go here, that would be preferential. So please, uh, please pray for that. Uh, second uh, is uh, that we would find a new home. So Holly and I, two days ago in 24 hours, sold our house. And that was like craziness. Uh, it, was, it was quite an emotional thing for, for both of us, actually. And so, um, yeah, it was just a, a lot, but it was really great. The Lord was really faithful in that. But 
uh, now we have to find a new place. And so uh, Roger and Brenda have been very gracious to let us live with them for the past week or two, which has been uh, great, and they're very hospitable in their home. But it would also be nice to have our own house as well. And so uh, we are, are working on finding that, that space, so please pray that the Lord uh, opens that door. And finally, uh, some of you had already met Mary, and uh, she's been a huge blessing. Uh, and it's been just really cool to watch Danny become a big brother and to, to have a little girl in the home and, and all of that. Uh, but in the midst of kind of planting, grafted, and all that, like, there's a lot of things to juggle and balance with having a newborn and trying to, to shepherd the flock and, and just all the work-life balance stuff. And so just uh, prayers that we'd be able to do that well and in a God-honoring way and in a healthy way because it's, uh, it's not always easy, but it, but it is worth it. So uh, anyways, uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, we're, we're looking at uh, Mark chapter 5, the latter part of the chapter. Uh, if you haven't opened there, go ahead uh, and open there. And uh, let me pray for all of us as we get into the text today. Father, thank you for your word that you have spoken to us with clarity and beauty And that we get to just gaze upon who you are, Jesus, and and what you've done for us. Lord, as we open this text, as we look at uh, what it has for us, please just convict us as you see fit, Spirit. Please encourage us as we go on our walk with the Lord Jesus. And I pray um, that you would just have your way among us. May your spirit be very present in this time. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let me ask this question. Um, Have you ever had a moment that you just kind of felt uh, stuck in life? Maybe it was a a season or a moment or some circumstances that you found yourself in, whether because of yourself or something that had happened to you uh, that, that weren't great and you just couldn't find your way out of it. You felt like no matter what you did, the situation would not change. Maybe it's a financial situation for you. Maybe you made a financial decision and there's kind of these consequences or roll off uh, from that. And and you find that you're kind of still dealing with the results of some of those financial choices today. Maybe you feel kind of relationally stuck. Maybe you feel like you're stuck in a relationship that is not good for you. And you're trying to find some way that the Lord would open a door for you to get rid of that. Or maybe you feel relationally excluded And you feel stuck there, like you're on the outside and you're trying to connect with people and you just can't seem to build any meaningful relationships. I know here at Elmwood, we have a number of senior saints. And uh, one of the things that I learned in my years here is that as, as people get older, our bodies decay, right? And we deal with real and significant health challenges. Maybe you feel like you're stuck dealing with, with some sort of health situation where you're trying to find a solution. You're trying to find the right medication And you can't sort that out. And when you find some sort of solution, another health thing pops up. And you just feel like you're in this whirlwind where your body is not cooperating. One of the ways that I felt stuck uh, over the past number of years was in the season where I had been uh, coaching as my part-time job. And so some of you know this, some of you don't, that for about six, seven years after college, uh, I I coached a a men's gymnastics program. And that was wonderful, and it was a great way that the Lord had provided for me and for my family. But it wasn't where I felt like the Lord wanted us long term. And and so there was kind of this tension or this disconnect where it's like, okay, the Lord has us here. This is what he wants us to do, but but I want to move on. Like, I want to do what the Lord wants me to do. And yet in God's providence, like he had us stuck there for a season 
this kind of crucible where he was shaping me and, 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 and used that for wonderful things. But I felt stuck, and it was really difficult like to ride that roller coaster of, okay, Lord, if this is where you want me, and then, Lord, how long, right? How long before you move me into the next season? I want us to think about that topic of, of being in a season that you just can't find your way out of. I know you guys have been going through Mark's gospel, and it has been cool just to tune in for the past couple sermons and see that you guys have been doing like some long scripture readings, uh, and you guys have been kind of having some reflection as a congregation. I think that that's really meaningful and, and, and awesome. And in the last section that you have been looking at here, we find ourselves in, in this group of four stories. Right, that are sandwiched together, and they share some common themes, and they tell us some common things about Jesus. Two of them you have already looked at. One of them is the calming of the storm. Right? You have the calming of the storm where they're out on the Sea of Galilee, and it's storming, and the disciples are freaking out, and Jesus is sleeping. Right, And so they wake him up, and they're like, Lord, don't you care that we're dying? And immediately, he just stops it. Right, And they're like, whoa, who is this guy? Right? And then they get to the other side of the sea, and they end up in the Gerasenes, and they meet this demon-possessed man, right? And he comes up, and you find that he's possessed by presumably a number of demons, and they find themselves casting themselves before Jesus. What, have, you, have you come before the time, right? Have, have you come in order to bring judgment, right? And Jesus tells them to get out of him. Right? He, he demonstrates his authority and sends them into the pigs who end up drowning themselves in the water. But as Jesus is in Gerasene territory, this is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. This is primarily Gentile or non-Jewish territory. We find that they don't really understand him. They don't understand his messianic role. And so they're freaked out that this guy just like sent some demons into pigs and then killed all their livestock, right? They're like, hey, you, you need to get out of here. And what we see is Jesus honors that. And so he gets in the boat and they head back over to the Sea of Galilee and he heads to kind of his home territory. And when we get there, we're going to encounter the two last stories in this chunk of four. And they're kind of unique scenarios. They're situations that appear to be irreversibly bad. There are situations that seem like there is no escape no matter what these people find is going on. And yet what we're going to see is that as bad as the situations are, God is greater than them. God is more capable and his mercy is more no matter how bad their situation is. And by extension, no matter how challenging our situations are, what we'll find is that God's love in Jesus is unchanging for us even in the midst of that suffering, even in the midst of feeling stuck. And Jesus is actually the one who's able to do something about it. What we see with Jesus is that instead of avoiding the broken and the needy, he invites us and he calls us in. So let's see what we have today in the text. We're going to start in verse 21. You just heard it read, so I'm not going to read the beginning portion again. But the first thing that we see is the plea of a desperate father. The plea of a desperate Father. So Jesus comes over to the Galilean or Jewish side of the sea, and he's been doing ministry here for a little bit, right? He's gained popularity. He's gained momentum. So much momentum, in fact, that there's been moments where they feared for his life, that they were going to crush him, the crowds. And so he has to like go out on a boat. And so he shows up and like his fan base is there. 
right? They're ready to see him. They, they flock to him. And yet amidst that group, there is one who is in a uniquely distressing situation. And it's this guy named Jairus. Now, Jairus uh, is a, a synagogue leader. In Greek, it's one of my favorite words. He's an arche synagogues. It, imagine just saying that like all the time. Great word, right? But what it means practically is that he's a lay person. He's not professional clergy, if you want to put it in those terms. He's a lay person, uh, but he kind of holds roles that would be somewhere in between maybe the, the board chair in a church and the pastor. And so he, he has administrative responsibilities within the congregation. He oversees the services. And then sometimes he might step in and actually teach during those services himself. And he's probably a Pharisee. So all of this stuff comes together to mean that this is a guy that's kind of got a, a little bit going for him. Right? This is a guy who, who has some means. This is a guy who is of strong reputation. But what we find is that he comes to Jesus... And his daughter's not well, right? And she is quite literally on her deathbed. Now, I want us to just take a minute to feel the weight of that tragic scenario. We read it, right? We know what's going to happen. The girl's going to be raised, right? But he didn't know that. He wasn't at that place during this time. He is in a place of severe desperation. And I want us to just think about this man of significance kneeling before Jesus and saying, if you don't intervene, my little girl's not going to make it. I don't have any other options. Like, I can't even imagine that. Like, I quite literally can't even imagine that as I'm thinking about Mary. Like, being in a position where, like, I have no power over what's going to happen. It's not something I have to buy. It's not something I have to do. Like, I can't help her, and she's going to die. And getting to the point where this controversial rabbi, Jesus, is my only hope. And saying, I need you to do something. Please do something. And what we find is that Jesus goes with him. And then the story quickly shifts. And and you'll understand why it shifts here in just a moment. But Jesus follows this man. And as he follows this man, the crowds go with him. And we meet another person. We meet another person, this outcast woman. Call this the act of an outcast woman. Let's actually look at what it says, starting in verse 24 to verse 34. So he's going with Jairus, and here's what we read. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people, you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what, he, what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith is healed. You go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So this is kind of the transition that happens as Jesus is following Jairus to his house. And so we have this echo again of the crowd. So he gets off the boat to meet Jairus. There's a crowd, right? He's going to meet this lady. There is a crowd. 
And amidst the crowd is one who is facing a different, unique, distressing situation. It's this lady who is bleeding. And she's been bleeding for the past 12 years. It's a really long time. Not just like emotionally to deal with, but like physically. Think about the weakness. Like her iron levels must have been like in the tank. Like imagine how weak this lady must have been after 12 years of this. Now she probably had some sort of menstrual disorder or some sort of hemorrhage that that never actually fully healed. But what happens is she keeps going to doctors and doctors in the ancient world can be kind of a mixed bag, right? Somewhere between like we kind of get biology and like here's some weird folk medicine, right? Like they're kind of a mixed bag. And what we find is she keeps getting worse. Like it doesn't actually, it doesn't even stay the same. Like she in fact got worse. And along with that, she doesn't only have medical challenges, right? As a result of, of her excursions to try and find healing, she's become poor. She doesn't have any money. She has spent everything she's had on trying to sort through this. And yet she is convinced that if she can touch Jesus, that she will find the healing that she needs. But it says that she came up and touched his cloak or his clothes. Luke gives us more details about how this actually plays out. Is It says she touched the, the fringes of his garment. What she's touching is what we call in Hebrew tzitzit. So if you've ever seen like a religious Jewish man, he's got fringes that he wears under his shirt. And they remind him uh, that he's supposed to be obedient to the commandments of God. He's supposed to be uh, obedient to the Torah. And, and that was the same in the ancient world, except for they kind of had them on the end of some longer cloaks. And so Jesus is walking around wearing this. And what this lady sees is this holy man and the holiest part of his clothes. She just wants to grab it. Like it's kind of this like pseudo magical thing. If I can only touch it, then this guy will actually make me well. And in this place of desperation, she touches Jesus and they both feel it immediately. She feels that she has been healed And he feels that power has gone out from him, which is a very weird thing to process when you're thinking about Jesus. Like the king of glory was kind of on a roller coaster ride with the Holy Spirit there, right? Like, oh, I felt power like coming out of my body. Didn't expect that. And I don't know who touched me. So it's like, who is it? Who who is going about and, and touching me? And Jesus takes the step to make her private pursuit of him a whole public affair. And we could look at this and we could say, Jesus, why are you doing that? Why are you shaming this lady for what is going on? But I don't think that that's the point. I think in the midst of this, we have to recognize the personal nature of what is going on here. This lady, in this kind of incognito way, has been pursuing something from Jesus. She has been pursuing the the fringes of his garment. She's been pursuing the healing that that he can provide. But what Jesus reveals to her, what he demonstrates, I think very clearly, is that she needs to encounter him. Not just what he has. Not just the things that he's wearing. She needs to encounter him with some level of significance so that she can trust in who he is, not just what he provides. Now, we see on the surface how inconvenient, obviously, this must have been for 12 years of bleeding. You're poor, right? So there's medical issues going on. There's financial issues going on. But along with this, there's quite a bit that is unspoken in the text that makes this even more heartbreaking. 
There's stuff that, that, that Mark assumes that we would understand when we read this that makes this even more of a tragedy. According to the Hebrew Bible, to come into contact with some sort of substance or person that has been associated with death, namely blood, right? She's bleeding for 12 years, would make one what we call ceremonially unclean, or sometimes you see defiled, or sometimes you see the word impure in your translations. And I think it's really important that we understand why that is significant. Now, as we think about what it means to be clean and unclean, here's what I don't want you to hear. Sinful and righteous. That's not what is going on here. Sinful and righteous are a different category. Clean and unclean does not have to do whether you're good with whether you're good or bad. Clean and unclean has to do whether you are in an appropriate place to approach God. Okay? And so if you've come into contact with something associated with death, you need to become pure before you approach the giver of life. In fact, the Hebrew Bible actually assumes that people will become impure. So, for instance, if we're going to use a similar example here, when a woman has her time of the month, she is impure for a season of time. And then the Hebrew Bible gives a prescription for how she'll become pure again. This still happens in Jewish communities actually today. But when we see that she's impure, she is not sinful. What would be sinful is if she was impure and she sought to approach the Lord in the temple. Okay, And that's where the tragedy sets in. Because she, has, she is not just bleeding for a temporary period of time. She is constantly bleeding for 12 years. Which means that she can never approach God in the temple for 12 years. And by extension of that, she also had to go around her community letting people know she was impure. Because if she touched them, then they would be considered impure themselves. So she's not only dealing with medical issues. She's not only dealing with financial issues. She's also dealing with religious exclusion. She cannot approach God. And she's dealing with social exile. Because who's going to want to be around her if they're going to be made impure? If she was married, she's probably not married anymore. And if she was unmarried, she probably will never be married. Unless there is some form of intervention. So imagine her in this crowd seeking out Jesus. What's happening in that crowd? She's touching everybody. And they don't know it. And they don't know that she's impure. It would be as if, for instance, I had COVID or some flu or something. And I go to the state fair and I'm coughing on a bunch of people. And I don't tell them that that I'm sick. When they find out that I'm sick, they're not going to be happy, are they? It's the exact same situation. So when she comes in fear and trembling before Jesus, yes, there's something going on with her respect for him. She is also terrified that all of those people are going to find out that she has made them impure. And yet for her, Jesus is more important. In the midst of her fear, in the midst of her weakness, in her transparent broken moment, she demonstrates something that Jesus had chewed the disciples out for. She demonstrates faith. Remember, when they're out on the boat with Jesus, they're fearing for their lives, right? And and Jesus chews them out. Like, why are you lacking faith? Don't don't fear, right? Uh, He's saying, God is with you in the boat, quite literally, right? And for this woman, instead of shrinking back in fear, 
she says, I need what he has. I, I need him. I need to demonstrate faith. And so instead of Jesus chewing out her like he did with the disciples, what does she say? Daughter, your faith has healed you. She, he commends her. And it's as she casts herself upon him that she finds that healing that she needs. But we have to recognize why this is in the midst of the Jairus story. Because Jairus is in the midst of a very tense moment where his daughter is about to die. And so he's going along with Jesus. And what he's about to find is that his daughter has in fact died. And the question is, is he going to demonstrate faith like the disciples and lack that faith? Or in the midst of the most tragic moment of his life, is he going to extend faith like this woman and find Jesus is the one that he needs? Let's look at verses 35 to 43 and we'll actually see what happens. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but sleeping. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So we find ourselves with the worst case scenario, right? While Jesus is doing this wonderful work for this woman over here, it apparently provided just enough time that this little girl over here finally died. And the group comes to Jairus and they say, What's the point? What's the point? She's dead. Her heart stopped beating, her brain shutting down. The illness has taken over her body. There is nothing that is left to be done. And yet Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. This is the theme that we have seen all throughout all four stories in this last section of Mark. The disciples are on the boat. They're fearing instead of believing. The people in the town where the demon-possessed man was, they're kicking Jesus out because they're fearing instead of believing. And then all of a sudden, there's this change with this woman, the one who is bleeding, and she believes, and something happens. Jesus acknowledges and commends that faith. And so the question that we're posed with when it comes to Jairus is, what is he going to do? Is he going to fret or is he going to have faith? I want to echo something that Pastor John had said either last week or the week before. And he said this, that in moments of fear, we're going to have them, right? We're going to feel them. That the emotional response is, is normative, right? That, that's just something that's going to happen. In moments of fear, we can do one of two things. 
We can either let our fear consume us and inform us, or we can let our fear drive us to the one who is actually able to address that need. Right? This leads me to think, what do we even do in moments of weakness, period? Whether it be fear or otherwise. Do we let our weakness, do we let our fear inform who we are? Tell us that we're less than. Tell us that there is no solution to this problem. Or do we let those things remind us that we're not God, but he is? Do we let those things remind us that he is the only one able to do something in the midst of those circumstances? I think these are good questions for us to be pondering. But Jesus comes into the home here. And it says there's a commotion going on. There's a commotion going on because they've hired professional mourners. And you might say, what is a professional mourner? A professional mourner is somebody that would show up at the house after somebody has died and they would facilitate the grieving process for the family or friends. This actually happens still in other parts of the world today. If you look at the later Jewish literature, their tradition is that no matter who died, no matter how highly exalted they were, or how, how, no matter how low in the social strata they were, there needed to be two people there who would mourn for them. If that's their tradition this is speaking of, it makes sense that they show up pretty quickly here. And the reason we know that they are professional mourners is because of how they deal with Jesus' comment. So Jesus comes and he sees the girl dead and he says, he uses the, the idiom, this is common in the Mediterranean world, she's not dead but sleeping. And what do they do? They laugh. If you're the parents, you don't laugh when Jesus makes comments about your little girl sleeping when she's actually dead. But these mourners, they've seen death a lot. And they know that she is stone cold dead. And there is nothing that is going to be done about it until Jesus, right? And so Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter and James and John, and he, he takes the parents and they go into the house and he raises this girl to life. Talitha kum is Aramaic for us. It says, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she stands up and she starts walking Around. Now, this is very significant. Let's, let's bring this back to this topic of purity. Remember, this woman who reached out to Jesus, she made him impure by touching him. But now we're kind of seeing the roles reverse. Because one of the things that made one impure for the longest period of time was to touch a dead body. And now Jesus is not only being touched, he's initiating it. He's really crossing cultural boundaries here. And yet there's this amazing thing we see, that instead of him being made impure, instead of him defiling himself, what do we see? This woman is healed. This little girl is raised. See, instead of people being barred from coming to God in the temple, well, we see that in Jesus, God is coming to them to make all things new, to make all things right. I love how it describes... Uh, her, her, the little girl's restoration. I, I think it's really interesting. So it says that she gets up and she walks around because she's 12, right? It, it clarifies that she was old enough to walk. That's the point. She gets up and she walks. But then what does Jesus say? Give her something to eat. What like a tender thing for him to say to this grieving family. What, what a normal thing for him to say to, to some people that are 
experiencing probably the most abnormal thing in their entire life, right? Little girl dies. Nope, she's sleeping. Let's raise her. Let's eat. It's like, what? Like, Jesus, like, what are you, what are you, what are you doing here? But, but I think there's a beauty in that. And I think it communicates that when he raised her, it wasn't like this, like, kind of just partial healing, right? She wasn't raised to be, like, barely functioning. She didn't need therapy. There wasn't any of this. He says, get up. She gets up, starts walking, and they decide it's time to eat together. Like, that is full restoration. That is, that is the power of God coming in. That is the power of God coming in full, right? There, there's no question about what just happened here. But as we come to the table, I just want us to think about what ties these stories this morning together. So we have the, the outcast woman and, and the father here, right? And by extension, his little girl who had died and, and was raised. What ties these stories together? Why are they put there in the way that they are? The biblical authors are not dumb. They, they're, they're very strategic in the way that they tie stories together. And I think what we see in these two stories is this, that these two people, right, the father and his dying daughter and the woman who is bleeding, they're both experiencing permanency of brokenness. They are irreversibly stuck in what is going on. Right? There's nothing that is going to be done. Apart from Jesus' intervention, this woman the one who is bleeding, will never experience a full life. She will never experience the fullness of marriage. She will never experience the fullness of family. She will never experience approaching God in his temple. And this little girl will never experience life at all. Right? She's dead. There's nothing to be done about it. But Jesus does intervene. And as we look at this, I think it's easy to look at them and say, okay, those aren't my situations. I don't feel irredeemably stuck in what's going on with me. And the scripture says that although those may not be our outward situations, we have an irreversible condition of our heart that results in all kinds of brokenness. We are in an irreversible condition where we rebel against our maker. And as a result of rebelling against our maker... We just destroy things in front of us. We can destroy our own lives. We can hurt those around us. And we introduce what I call kind of this trajectory of death, right? Where we are not going in a positive direction. And yet Jesus shows us today that he is the hinge upon which redemption and renewal is possible. Just think about him encountering their brokenness and impurity. Okay? He is not repulsed by this woman. He's compassionate towards her. And the same is true for us this morning. You might be here and you might feel unworthy. Or you might feel like, Lord, I feel like I've screwed up too much to come to you. I feel like things are too complicated in my life at this point to experience intimacy with you. But I think the same goes true for us, that Jesus does not look upon us and is dissuaged from saving us. Jesus looks upon us with love and compassion and says that he wants us. 
that he's willing to die for us, that he was raised on our behalf. And it's through faith in him that we find forgiveness and we're assured of this fact that we're never permanently stuck. That there is no situation that is too difficult for God to change or redeem or do something with. Now, we may not experience that unstuckness, that redemption, that, that, that feeling of things being as they should be in this life. Maybe we will, just like these two ladies did in the text, right? But maybe not. But when we look at Jesus, we have assurance that God is making all things new. And as he has been raised, so those in him will be raised. And because he has been raised, he is the king over all. And when he comes again, he will enact justice. And everything will be made as it should be. The point of today's text is this, that the indiscriminate love of Jesus turns irredeemable circumstances into testimonies of God's grace. So I don't know whether you're here this morning and you feel really down. If you do, I want to assure you that what you're going through is not too much for Jesus. And it is not something that he wants to avoid. It's something that he wants to dive into. And I know that because he dove into death on your behalf. And maybe you're here and you feel like things are okay. And I want to encourage you to take a posture of humility now in these next few minutes to think with, with real clarity about your life. And the reality is, is where do you need grace? Because Jesus provides that grace in abundance. The indiscriminate love of Jesus turns irredeemable circumstances into testimonies of God's grace. How might your life be a testimony? How might you operate and live out of the truth that you are not irredeemable, but that you are loved and that God can still do something with you in the midst of that? I'm going to take a few minutes. So I'll just take a minute and we'll just have a moment of silence. I want us to reflect on that. And then we're going to come to the communion table after we pray together. So let's take a minute.